fish, right? And so for the most part, a lot of people, whether you've been in the church or you haven't been in the church, you, even though it's four chapters long, you would know the story of Jonah based upon the fish. And uh, what I want to share is that for the next four weeks, we're actually going to be diving into this book. And I'm super excited to dive into this book. I'm super excited to see uh, how God is going to minister to you and I uh, as a church as we dive into the book of Jonah. Now, the book of Jonah contains a lot of different themes. Uh, even though it's four chapters, there's a lot of things that you themes that you can find regarding God, who he is. Um, and in this book, I think one of the greatest themes in this book, if not the, the greatest theme of the book of Jonah, really is a reflection of the great, one of the greater themes in all of Scripture. I think Jonah echoes a great theme that Scripture prescribes. And Scripture tells us this, many times... God calls, man runs, and God pursues. The great theme of Scripture, and really the great theme of Jonah, is that God calls, man runs, and God pursues. And somewhere sandwiched between the faithfulness of God is man's rebellious. And so consider the book of Jonah kind of a case study of somebody and how they responded to the call of God. Now, I want to jump in just to the first three verses of Jonah. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go there with us. Jonah chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. And if you don't, we've made this available for you on the screen as well. But if you have your Bibles, please turn to Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now, there are many people that look at the book of Jonah and believe that the book of Jonah is kind of a parable. Uh, there are some scholars that think that the book of Jonah was a parable. Uh, it was an allegory, and it's not really a historical book. Um, a lot of people just can't seem to believe how a giant fish would swallow a man. Uh, but what we have to be reminded in Scripture um, is that Jesus himself looked back at Jonah and regarded Jonah as a historical figure. And so if the book of Jonah was a parable or if it was just uh, an analogy, then Jesus would be wrong. He wouldn't be God. And so as Christians, we look at the book of Jonah as a accurate historical event. And there are several other reasons why. I don't want to get into that today, but I just kind of wanted to share with you that, um, that tidbit this morning. So Jonah chapter 1, 1 through 3, and the opening of the book reads like this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now before we go further, I just want to give you two quick truths and one little warning when it comes to running from God. Two quick truths and one little warning when it comes to running from God. First of all, the truth is we are all expert runners. If you're just a little bit honest with yourself, you would agree with the truth is, is that we are all expert runners. Mankind has been running since the beginning. Out of all of God's creation, this is what really is interesting. Out of all of God's creation, humanity is the only one that prefers to run. In Genesis, uh, Scripture tells us that God speaks and creation obeys. You remember that story? God speaks, the moon, the stars, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the field, they all obey God when God speaks. In fact, the pattern of Scripture is God speaks, creation obeys, and then God says what? God says it is good. So let's, let's try that again. God speaks, creation obeys, and then God says... 
very good. Yet when it comes to mankind, I want you to see this. Genesis chapter 3 verse 8 tells us, this is talking about Adam and Eve. It says, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And then man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Now look at Jonah chapter 1 verse 3 again. We're told Jonah rose to flee from the presence of the Lord. And we're told that the first man and woman, they hid from the presence of the Lord. So Adam hides. Jonah flees. Either way, both are running from God's presence. And so the truth is, we are expert runners. We've been running from the beginning. Now here's the second truth. The truth is, God is omnipresent. So the phrase, from God's presence, appears twice in the opening lines of Jonah. But unfortunately for Jonah and you and I, there is nowhere you or I or Jonah can escape that God is not already there. Even in the midst of a furious storm on a boat full of godless sinners, God is still very much present, still very much in control, and Jonah knows this already. Jonah knows better. And so I told you I would share with you two truths to open up and one warning. And this is the warning that I want you to listen carefully. Here it is. Number three, the warning is, so if the truth is, is that man likes to run, and if the truth is that man can't run because God's omnipresent, then here's the warning. The warning is this. If you want to run from God, there's always a ship willing to take you. If you want to run from God... There is always a ship. And let me add, there's always a ship full of godless sinners that are willing to bring you on board for the ride. But here you go. You ready for this? Just because a way has been made does not mean that God made it. Satan makes ways too. Satan makes ways too. We must be careful. Because sometimes some of us think we're boarding a ship. But the truth is, we're actually boarding a ship heading the opposite way of the will of God. That's not a ship at all. That's actually a shipwreck. Some of you are in a ship right now that's in a shipwreck because that ship was fleeing the opposite direction of the presence of God. The good news is that any given moment, you can change your direction and move back towards what God has for you in your life. So... I want to encourage everyone in this room for the next four weeks to kind of stay with us. Um, we're going to take a look at the three major characters of the book of Jonah. And the three characters are this. Today we're going to talk about the man of God himself, Jonah. Next week we'll talk about the city of God, which is Nineveh. And then finally the last two weeks we're going to focus on the God of the city. And so we're going to talk about the man of God this morning, next week the city of God, Nineveh, and finally we'll end our last two weeks with God himself, and we'll call it the God of the city. Now, some of you are probably thinking, well, isn't the fish a main character of the story? I'm, I'm sorry if you're a fish enthusiast. He's not, okay? And I, I heard, I believe I heard it was, uh, I believe I heard a pastor say that if you look at the fish as really just kind of like a divine uber, you'll be okay. That's all he is, okay? That's all he is. <laughs> All right. So again, I want to encourage us. To, I want to encourage you to stay with us for the next four weeks as we take a look at what I believe are the three major characters of this story. And I want you to hear my prayer for the next four weeks. I want you to hear my prayer and what it's been for this particular sermon series. Um, 
My prayer has been that everyone hearing these messages would be challenged to start listening, stop running, and start moving on mission in your city, in your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood for the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look, we have to, we have to become a mission-minded people if Inspired Church is going to accomplish what God has called us to accomplish. So again, start listening, stop running, and start moving on mission in your city for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray that your word would be clear. I pray that you'd prepare our hearts. Pray that the seeds would land on good soil. Pray the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would bring increase. I pray that I would step out of the way and that I would calmly, cautiously, carefully uh, declare your words to your people. And I just pray, Lord, that you would have your way this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I want to take the rest of our time today to um, look at the man of God, Jonah. You see, before Jonah was known as a reluctant runner, he was actually a heroic prophet. Um, the opening line of the book describes Jonah as being the son of Amittai. Now, the son of Amittai is a phrase that literally means Jonah's name is son of my faithfulness. You see, Jonah came from a family that feared the Lord. Jonah was born and raised in church. Many people who read the book of Jonah don't realize that Jonah was a successful prophet who prophesied during the reign of King Jeroboam in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. And so when you go through Jonah, you don't realize that Jonah played a role in Scripture in 2 Kings. And here's what we're told. We're told because of the sin of its kings and its people, Israel was oppressed by an invading country. But because of God's compassion, they were delivered, and Israel enjoyed a season of expansion. Now, hear me out. Even though the king Jeroboam remained in his sin, it was according to the prophet Jonah that the Lord would continue to bless Israel and expand its borders despite the sin of its king. Jonah was kind of like a hero then. The words that he spoke over Israel were not only fully fulfilled, but they were words of blessing and expansion. You see, everybody likes a prophet, a prophet of blessings, amen? Nobody likes that prophet that comes up and says, hey, thus saith the Lord, there's some things going on in your life you need to change. I don't like that. But everybody likes, hey, man, your territory is going to be increased. God is going to do great and mighty things. Everybody's like, yeah, I like that guy. Bring him back next week, Pastor Phil. And so Jonah was kind of like one of those guys, except his stuff was true. That's what God was really saying. God doesn't say all bad things. He says some beautiful things. In fact, everything he says is beautiful. But Jonah was not only prophesying expansion and growth, but he wasn't a false prophet. He wasn't a prosperity gospel speaker, right? He was literally speaking the words of the Lord. And so if you can imagine, he was kind of a hero in Israel. The words that he spoke over Israel were not only fully fulfilled, but the words were a blessing and expansion. We could say, despite the king's darkness, Jonah was God's light to Israel. Jonah was God's light to Israel. But the heroic prophet quickly turns into a reluctant runner once God speaks a word to Jonah that he really doesn't agree with. You see... Nineveh was an, was an Assyrian city. 
a nation who had previously dealt cruelly with Israel. They were an evil people that Jonah considered to be mortal enemies. I want you to see this. Jonah hated Nineveh. But sometimes God will speak a word that does not agree with you and I. Sometimes God will speak a commandment that doesn't agree with our preferences. Sometimes God will call you to be with a people you despise. But we don't have the right to pick and choose which words we'll obey and which ones we'll dismiss based upon whether they're agreeable or not to us. When God speaks, he speaks. God is still God, amen? God is still God whether his word comforts us or whether his word pushes us to do something uncomfortable. The question is never God's word, but it's your obedience. That's always the question. Now, this reminds me of a conversation I was having the other day. But I was uh, talking with a good buddy of mine, watching the 49ers together, and we were laughing because he was raised in Dakota, and he was raised wearing red. Okay, read in between the lines there. Got it? And uh, what I didn't realize was, was that he's doing a home group this year. And I was super excited to have him and his wife do a home group. And we were just high-fiving. We were talking about, man, that's so great. How do you feel about it? He's all, oh, it's so good. And he kind of has this laugh or whatever. He goes, but, um, but you, partnered, you partnered me with somebody. And his wife was kind of laughing as well as he's telling the story. And um, I was so excited. I got a chance to meet them. And they're amazing. They're wonderful. He goes, but then I went on Facebook. And I realized that they were raised in L.A. And their preferred color is blue. And I looked at him, I was like, wait, wait, what? You know, I'm like one of those schoolboys raising chairs, like, hi. <laughs> yeah, red and blue, those are cool colors, like my favorite. Red, white, and blue, we get America, we're good, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> but what I soon came to realize was that red and blue are rivals. Okay, I'm not that ignorant, I kind of know that. But in this moment, I seem to think red and blue are rivals, and you know, maybe several years ago or once upon a time, instead of studying the Bible together, they might have been doing something else together or against each other. Um, yet they're partnering to reach the community of the kingdom of God. And I, and I just thought and I just thought to myself, man, what a great example of what the mission heart of God looks like. What a great example of what the Holy Spirit does to an individual when they submit their lives over to him and stop moving in their own agenda. All of a sudden, walls that used to be up come down. Rivals that used to be rivals all of a sudden become friends, and the Holy Spirit begins to move inside of both of these individuals, really to accomplish a mission after God's heart. And so I want you to know that Jonah hated the Ninevites, Way more than the Sudanians hate the Nordanians. Way more. Jonah hated the Ninevites. And so I want you to know this is why Jonah ran. Now, in the story, there are two types of runners. I want you to see this. In the story, there are two types of runners. And just for the sake of this morning's message, I've decided to call them rebel runners and religious runners. Two types of runners in this story, rebel runners and religious runners. And really, in life, there are two types of runners. 
rebel runners and religious runners. Well, let me explain to you what a rebel runner is. Scripture tells us when fleeing from God, Jonah boarded a boat full of pagan idol worshipers that cried out to false and fake gods when the storm hit. These mariners did not worship the true God. They did not serve the true God. In fact, they served carved images and willfully practiced immorality without restraint. They saw nothing wrong with what they were doing. Sin was desirable. It was attainable. Pleasure was their king. They ran out of ignorance because they were unaware of the true God. Nobody had ever told them. For many in the world, and especially here in the Bay Area... They're not raised in a Christian home. They never read the scriptures. They were never brought up to think on the things of God. If anything, they were brought up to be enemies with God without even knowing it. And so they run from God. They run from a God that they've never heard of. They run from a God they've never experienced. We work with them. We're friends with them. They reject God because they know nothing else. And then there are the religious runners. And I'm going to spend a little bit more time on these guys. And to be honest, I think I'd rather deal with the rebels than the religious runners. And I'll explain why. You see, the religious runners, like Jonah, they know the word of God. They've had a relationship with God. They're even uniquely gifted and called by God. But they've become complacent. Some have become bitter. Others are prideful, selective. Others have become too good, too churchy, too self-righteous, too entitled. And like Jonah, they despise the rebels and wish they'd all just die. But here's what's fascinating. Throughout the story, these rebels, these pagan idol worshipers, respond more humbly and more willfully to the word of the Lord than the man of God himself. And if you don't believe me, all you have to do is look at verse 5 in chapter 1. It tells us the mariners were afraid of the storm and they cried, they cried out. Meanwhile, Jonah is at sleep. Chapter, verse, chapter 1, verse 6 says the mariners are begging for salvation, asking Jonah, please pray to your God. And what's amazing to me is that this is a picture of the world rebuking the church. Can you imagine these idol worshipers, sexual immorality, they have no idea who God is. Jonah's running from God, gets on a boat, goes down the boat, falls asleep. The storm's hitting, and the pagans are saying, what do we do? They're praying to their false gods, and their gods aren't doing anything. How's that for you? When the world gets into a storm, they look to their gods of pleasure. Their gods can't satisfy them. And so they look around looking for an answer. And there the Christian is asleep. And they wake him up and they say, what's going on? Pray to your God. This is a picture of the world rebuking the church. And the world is rebuking the church because the church is not doing what it's been called to do. They tell Jonah in verse 8, whose fault is this? And then in verse 10, they say, why have you done this when they find out it's his fault? Isn't that amazing? Literally, the world is looking at the church saying, why aren't you doing what God has called you to do? Why are you running from God? Jonah, because of your disobedience, we're all going to die. 
And that great city you're called to is going to hell. Jonah, because of your disobedience, we're all going to die. And that great city you're called to is going to hell. Jonah, wake up. You know it's heavy when the sinner has to preach to the so-called saint. Man, don't let this be the cry of your family members. The cry of your coworkers. The cry of your friends. You know what, Inspire Church? We can't let Union City beg and rebuke Inspire Church for not doing what God called us to do in the first place. You know, side story, I used to think that cities hate churches. I used to think that there are cities that just rather not have churches. And you know what? That's true. They're actually, it's very difficult to plant churches. In fact, and I won't name the city, but there are several cities in the Bay Area that don't allow church plants to even come in anymore. And they'll do everything they can to block the effort of a church. And you know what the religious spirit says? I don't even go there, but it's like that lying devil, so evil. And I believe there's some truth to that. But you know what the real truth is? It's because the testimonies of the churches in that city have destroyed what God wants to do. Cities don't like churches because churches do nothing for the cities anymore. And a lot of times what I've found out because I've talked to city officials, it's not that we don't like churches. It's that when churches come in, they're just to themselves. They do nothing for us. There's no civic pride. And the reason why cities don't like churches is because churches get so inward focused they bring nothing to the city. Here's the question. If Inspire Church moved tomorrow, would the city even miss us? If the answer is no, then we're not doing what we've been called to do. I've heard stories of churches getting out to move and city officials going to the church's board and saying, what can we do to keep you here in this city? We can't afford to lose you. You do too much for our city. In chapter 1, verse 11, the mariners asked the question, what shall we do? In chapter 16, verse 16, we're told that they feared the Lord exceedingly, that they feared God. Even the evil city Nineveh, when given the opportunity later on in chapter 3, verses 6 through 7, Scripture says that once Jonah preaches a message to them, they immediately fall on their face, they repent, they fast, and they ask for forgiveness of their sins. Everywhere in the book of Jonah, you have the rebels responding humbly to God, and you have the Christians not responding at all. I remember being asked a long time ago, how do you wake up a dry and complacent church? And my answer was simple, go win the lost. Sometimes it's easier to birth a baby than resurrect the dead. In fact, most of the time it is. Now, thank God we serve a God who does miracles because he can resurrect the dead. But most of the time it's easy to birth the baby than resurrect something that's dead. Sometimes the most difficult people aren't the people that just got saved. It's that person that's been saved for 15 and 20 years. Stuff just becomes beneath you. You, you, you graduated. You're, a, you're on another level of discipleship. I'm like, wait, what? Where is that? It's scripture. 
Oh, no, I don't do that no more. Oh, okay. Sorry about that. I didn't know you and Christ were that close. I want you guys to see something here. I want you to see this and notice this. Both the rebel and the religious, they have their idols. But it's the religious idol that's a little bit more difficult to see. It's the religious idol. It's a little more difficult to detect. Now, many times it's the church people that hide better than the people of this world. Like many times it's you who know how to hide better than the people out there. come in like, look, I ain't trying to hide. I smell like alcohol, but I got here. I've been messed up last night, and I made all kinds of mistakes, but I'm here today. And then we got the person who's been to church for 10 years, did the same exact thing, but coming in, oh, I'm doing great. God bless you. It was great. I was at home group. It was beautiful. God is doing a new thing inside of me. It's like you are a hider. And I would rather you be a rebellious rebel, honest before the presence of the Lord, than a hider. Don't ever get to a place where you'd rather hide than be honest with the Lord and his people. So how can we be sure that Inspired Church never becomes a sanctuary for religious runners? You want to know what the answer is? Here's the answer. Become a church on mission. Become a church on mission. Become a church that reaches the lost. Become a church that loves its city and the religious runners will run. Because religious idolatry is best exposed by whether or not a church or a believer is moving faithfully on mission. Seeking and saving the lost is one of the great litmus tests of the church and will be Inspire's biggest test in year number two to determine whether we're here to accomplish God's mission or just be a little bit of a religious runner just coming together and blessing us for and no more. So what can we learn from the man of God? What can we learn from the heroic prophet turned reluctant runner? I think a great lesson the book of Jonah teaches us is the difference between the tribal heart of Jonah and the missionary heart of God. If we're going to become the people God has called us to become, we're going to have to replace our tribal mentality with the mission-mindedness of God. You might be asking me, well, what is a tribal mindset? Let me explain to you. A tribal mindset loves to elevate personal and cultural preferences. They say things like, if anyone were more like me, or if everyone were more like me, this church would be a better place. They make excuses for not joining community. They only hang out with people who have a certain look or make a certain amount of money. These are spiritual snobs, as I like to call them. And they do nothing to push the mission forward and actually talk down about the mission so they can feel better about their religiosity. A tribal mindset refuses to give the time of day to people who don't look like them, talk like them, act like them, and dress like them. The highest value of someone who has a tribal mindset is self-preservation. They say things like, how can I protect myself from those who are different than me? Jonah wanted Nineveh completely destroyed. Because a prospering Nineveh threatened Israel's existence. You know, a tribal mindset is full of self. Self-righteousness. Self-centeredness. Self-preserving. A tribal mindset is clicky. And would prefer a culture that keeps insiders in and outsiders out. A tribal mindset says only Democrats are Christians. 
And a tribal mind says only Republicans are Christians. Since when did Jesus say he's a Democrat or a Republican? Some of you have that mindset, though. That's a tribal mindset. That's religiosity, and that's not going to reach anybody. That's going to alienate people. Tribal mindset doesn't make differences for other people's opinions and experiences. But I have news for you. I'm going to say three things that could be offensive. I already said them, but Jesus is not a Democrat. Jesus is not a Republican. And he, he's not even American. But the missionary heart of God produces a mission-minded people, a mission-minded church. You know, the mission prefers hospitality over individuality. The mission prefers that we love the stranger, that we invite the stranger. For the missionary heart, the highest value isn't self-preservation, but it's self-sacrifice. Oh, wait a minute. No, no, no. I'm not here to sacrifice. I'm comfortable with where I'm at. Yeah, I do. I do. You know, I serve once every three weeks. That's my sacrifice. Some of you are way too comfortable. Way too comfortable. The missionary heart's highest value is self-sacrifice. A mission-minded person exists not primarily for themselves, but for the sake of others. It's a heart and a mindset willing to be inconvenienced for the gospel. It's a heart and a mindset willing to be inconvenienced for the gospel. It's a heart and a mindset willing to be inconvenienced for the gospel. It's a heart and a mind that's willing to be discomforted for the well-being of others. While the tribal mind says to themselves, they didn't say hi to me, so I'm not going to say hi to them. The mission-minded initiates and says, I'm going to be where they are. And even if they don't say hi to me, I'm going to keep saying hi. Can I go off here? You know, the tribal mindset gets in your little cliques. The tribal mindset, well, you know, I didn't go here, and I didn't get invited here, and I didn't go there, and then then they start talking all this. That's tribal mindset. That's not Jesus. That's not what this church is built on. Don't don't, Don't sow that poison into the foundation of this church. The tribal mindset gathers together and has a little small group. It's so funny. You won't show up to a small group that studies scriptures, but you'll go to a small group to talk about other people. Wow. I shouldn't get off my notes. (sighs) But I'm tired of it. Maybe that's why Jesus like, look, when I start my church, I'm going to do it with 12 instead of 12,000. Maybe the American church has got this all wrong, right? I mean, I, I, even me, I have so much performance pressure. It's pride. It's arrogance. It's myself. And every, I come here I'm like, God forbid, there's no one shows up. How many people were here today? Are we going to? It's like it's just a Sunday morning. Jesus didn't care about all that. He said, give me 12, and one of them is going to stab me in my back, so give me 11. And guess what? I'm not going to be tribal about it. I'm going to walk with the one that's going to stab me in the back. I'm going to love him. He's going to crucify me. But I'm going to do it anyway the whole time knowing it. I'm not going to reject. And I, I, you know, when I I start going off and getting specific, I don't want people to think, oh, gosh, he's talking about me. Someone told him. I just want you to know I know human nature. I know human nature. I've been there too, okay? I'm not, you know, I, I know human nature, right? I know, right? 
Some of us, I, I, again, I'm probably going to go off again. I need to get back to my notes, but. <laughs> I mean, we have group chats full of making fun of people we should be going after. There are young adults and young people in here. You're so into yourself. You don't know how to initiate love, and, and you, all you know how is to hurt back. Like, when are you going to let the Holy Spirit do something inside of you? Like I said, it's not you. I know human nature. I know myself. I've been in those group chats. Jonah represents the best of a tribal mindset. And God, gracious, slow to anger, compassionate, pursuing, represents the absolute best of a missional heart. I want to finish this morning's message by answering this question. How does God move a person from a tribal heart to a heart of missions? How does God do it? In Jonah's case, a large fish swallowed him and then threw him back up. But the fish represented a divine moment appointed by God to reroute Jonah and to place him back on mission. I want to point something out. If you would actually skip over to chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 3, and we'll have it up here as well. But I want you to see something. How does God take a tribal mindset and put it back on mission? Some of you, I'm going to pray that on your way home, you get swallowed by a big fish. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 says this, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Here it is. And I want you to see this. Then the word, came to, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Look what the scripture says. A what? A second time. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, and then he went where? He went to Nineveh. Now please notice this. The call of God stayed the same, but the man of God was different. And the difference between the running Jonah and the responding Jonah was a bit of brokenness and humility. And in the end, we're going to see that he kind of reverts back and forth to this thing. But a bit of brokenness and humility reroutes Jonah. What do I mean by that? I want you to see what Sinclair Ferguson, don't you love all these names right? Listen to Sinclair Ferguson. God intends to bring life out of death. We may well think of this as the principle behind all evangelism. Indeed, we may even call it the Jonah principle. As, Gene, as Jesus himself seemed to have called it. You see, in chapter 1, a running Jonah is confronted by a storm. Knowing his disobedience was the cause of this storm, he was willfully thrown overboard. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow him up. We're told for three days and for three nights, Jonah was lodged in the belly of the fish. Can you imagine the smell? Can you imagine the darkness? Can you imagine the sheer claustrophobia and fear that the water, every time this fish swallows the water, you're in the belly of a fish. It stinks. How are you still alive? You must be full of fear. When is the air going to run out? What is going on? Kill me now. But look, it's here in the dark place that Jonah prays a humble prayer. I want you to see what chapter 2 verse 1 says. I'm going to really give you just a quick little understanding of his prayer. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, Jonah says, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. He compares the belly of the fish to Sheol, which is the death in the grave. 
Now look at verse 5, chapter 2, verse 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. Chapter 2, verse 6, said, yet you brought up my life from the pit. He considers the belly of the, of the, uh, of the fish like a pit. Jonah ends his prayer in chapter 2, verse 9 by saying, what I have vowed, I will pay. And then he makes this declaration. Are you ready? Jonah says this, what I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Do you see what he's saying here? Do you see what's happening here? Jonah finally admits salvation doesn't belong to me, and I have no right to determine who, where, and when it goes to. Jonah admits salvation is not his. It doesn't belong to Israel. And it's in the belly of that fish that this tribal heart has a revelation of a God who was on mission. This is the essence and the power of the Jonah principle. As we experience weakness, as we are brought low, Christ's power is made more evident inside of us. You ready for this? Some of you need to write this down or just mentally remember it. If you write it down, people look at you and say, oh, that person must have a tribal heart. So just remember this, okay? I'll do you a favor. You ready for this? The only remedy for your tribal heart is the Jonah principle. God's going to have to bring you low if he's ever going to do anything inside of you. One preacher termed it gospel humiliation. Gospel humiliation takes a self-dependent person and makes them teachable. Gospel humiliation takes a self-dependent person and gives them a repentant heart. Gospel humiliation takes a self-dependent person and makes them a dependent upon God and upon community. All oh, the people I used to make fun of, now I need them. The people I didn't want to be around, I desperately need them because they got no place to go. The people that I used to deny, they're now my best friends because my friends in the world have rejected me. The people I never wanted to be around, I talked bad about and I put down, they have become my family. That's gospel humiliation. And until you start talking and acting and walking like that, you can say you've been humiliated by the gospel, but you really haven't. A broken vessel is a vessel that understands mercy, compassion, and forgiveness. When you know those things, when you know those things have even been given to you, you then can give it to others. But when we become self-righteous, we have the audacity to believe that we're okay. We're good. Sometimes in order to be missional, we need to understand the depths of our own depravity and admit you're not okay and you're not good. I don't know about you, but the church I want to build, the members I want to serve with, and the leaders I want to raise up are those who understand their need for Jesus, their need for community. I want to see inspired full of those who have a desire to serve at any level because nothing is beneath them and will stop at nothing to protect this church from the evil poisons of religiosity and tribal mentality. If you are sitting in a circle of people that are displaying a tribal mentality, say to stop it. Stop it. And I'm finished here. If you go home tonight and just decide to read through the book of Jonah ahead of time, four chapters, real short read. And if you look closely, you'll see an interesting pattern emerge 
especially in the beginning of the chapter. Jonah, in a mysterious way, the way the author has written this, has purposefully designed a theme or an idea. If you read through the first couple of verses of the chapter, Jonah keeps going down. He keeps heading downwards. It's really crazy when you look at it. And what do I mean by that? In verse 3, Scripture says Jonah goes down to Joppa. Then after paying his fare, Scripture says Jonah goes down into the ship. Then we're told in verse 5, a mighty tempest rocks the boat. The mariners were afraid. Total chaos had broken out. People were literally throwing cargo overboard. Yet Jonah is described as gone down into the inner part of the ship. Do you see this progression? Jonah goes down to Joppa. Jonah goes down to the boat. Jonah goes deeper into the inner part of the boat. And then if you continue to read scripture as the story unfolds, we see that Jonah is thrown down overboard. Then he goes deeper into the sea. And finally in chapter 2, Jonah is swallowed by a fish. And he himself uses phrases like the belly of Sheol, which is the grave, cast it downward into the deep pit. For Jonah, going down is a euphemism for death. He's dying. The suggestion is this story is that each step away from the presence of the Lord is one step closer to death. But even when God comes in and intervenes, he takes them even further down, further lower, further beneath. And it's just as Jonah reaches his lowest point that the Lord commands the fish to vomit him out. Isn't that amazing? It's just as Jonah reaches the lowest point that the Lord says, now you're ready. Fish. Vomit this tribal, prejudiced, racist man out. And I'm sending him back to the city and the call that he ran away from. And the God of the second chance calls him with the exact same call he had. But this time, Scripture says, God calls for a second time. Undeserving, unmerited favor always gives us a second chance to fulfill the call he has placed over our lives.